Who do you want to be as a leader? What are the blind spots you're missing? If you had a magic wand and you could change anything about your workplace, what would you do with it? These are the kinds of questions we explore on Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt. I'm a keynote speaker, emotional intelligence coach, and leadership trainer who partners with executives and emerging leaders who want to achieve extraordinary results for themselves and their organizations. You're in the right place if you're ready to cultivate the self-awareness to be the leader you were born to be. Let's go on this journey together. Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. I'm your host, Kristen Harcourt, and I'm excited for another really good conversation. I actually found it hard to sleep last night because I was so excited for this conversation, really fired up by Ariva's book. And uh, so I think this is going to be a really good conversation. So I would love to introduce you. I am going to be speaking to Ariva Martin, who is an award-winning civil rights attorney, advocate, social issues commentator, talk show host, and producer. She's a CNN legal analyst and Harvard Law School graduate. Ariva founded Martin and Martin, a Los Angeles-based civil rights firm, and is the CEO of Butterfly Health, a mental health technology company. She's the best-selling author uh, and dedicated of four books, and she's dedicated her fourth book, which is a called Awakening Ladies, Leadership, and the Lies We've Been Told, to helping women worldwide recognize, own, and assert their limitless power. Welcome to the show, Ariva. Thank you so much for having me. So as a starting point, um, I would love, Ariva, if you could share a little bit more about your story and why you're so passionate about this work that you're doing. So as you said at the introduction, I'm a civil rights attorney by training uh, that then segued my career really more into media uh, and some other entrepreneurial ventures. I'm passionate about this work because I've experienced firsthand the structural biases that prevent women from achieving, uh, you know, their highest potential uh, in the workplace, whether it's a corporate work environment, nonprofit or governmental agency. And I experienced some of these barriers as I was, you know, starting my legal practice, as I was, uh, you know, ascending into positions of leadership. And, And I wanted to share what I learned about these experiences with other women, hoping that they could avoid uh, some of the experiences that I had. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so poignant. You give so many stories and and some of them are even, you know, people who you loved family members who had the best of intentions. Um, And and I love what you really did too, in terms of talking about some of the lies and five different lies that were told. And some of those lies have been passed on. And so you're being fed some of this information, especially when you were talking about um, some of the lies around if, if you work hard, you know, if you just work really hard, then you can get everything that you want. So talk to us a little bit more about some of those lies that women are told. Yeah, I start with that. Uh, Obviously, I I highlight five in my book, Awakening. It's by no means an exhaustive list, not meant to be. Many other women, I'm sure, if given an opportunity, uh, could write their own list. Some would be overlapping and some would be uh, additional ones that could be added to my list. But I was told, taught very early on, that hard work would be enough, that if you worked hard, if you got the job done, you got to work early, stayed late, took on assignments, 
and, you know, did your best. And, and if you, you performed well, that that would be enough for you to ascend to positions of leadership and power in any organization. Uh, and I was told to me by my grandmother, my godmother, who taught me my work ethic. I, I love those women dearly. And I know they meant me nothing but good. But that was really part of the story. It wasn't the entire story. Uh, we saw in this country, you know, 10 years ago or so, this, this you know, this kind of lean in mentality uh, that, again, said to women, do more, work harder, stay later, take on more assignments. So women have been told by men, they've been told by women, they've been told by the women in their lives like me that they love, that we need to work harder. But I wanted to shift that paradigm and, and really peel back that onion, those layers, and reveal the reality is that women are already working hard. They've been working hard throughout the generations, throughout the ages. And hard work has never been enough to uh, cement your place in management. Uh, it wasn't years ago, and it surely isn't that way today. There's a recent study out uh, that showed women doctors. There's a $2 million wage gap between female physicians and male physicians. Even though more women graduate uh, med medical school than men and more women enter medical school by a slight number than men, but men earn over the lifetime of their careers $2 million more. <laughs> I mean, that's just a, a shocking number. Are we going to say that women doctors aren't working hard enough? Are we going to say that, you know, they're not leaning in? Of course not. So when you look at those kinds of statistics, you look at the fact that there are only 41 female CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, despite the fact that women are amongst the most educated demographic in this country, only two of those 41 women are African-American. African-American women are the most educated demographic in this country. So again, that math doesn't add up. If, if going to college, getting a degree is supposed to be your ticket to you know, uh, higher positions, then you would expect to see more parity when you look at the C-suites and the number of CEOs. So there's, there's something structural that's happening that's not being talked about. And that's what I wanted to do in this book is, is talk about the structural barriers that prevent women from achieving success and, and, and take the focus off women because we know that's, that's misplaced focus. It's not us. We're doing enough. We're doing our part, but you can't lean into a closed door. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and I, I, I thought you ex really explained this beautifully when you were saying, um, ladies stop asking for a seat at the table and, and you really explain it's really about several different things when it comes to seeing our value and owning our value and who we're surrounding ourselves with. So talk to me a little bit more around this instead of, we hear a lot of people saying, well, we want to have a seat on the table. We want a seat at the table and you really offer a different perspective here. Yeah, you know, a seat at the table is good in, in some instances, and it's kind of like what women are told, you know, wait our turn, which is, to me is a very similar uh, refrain that women hear. Uh, and a lot of agencies, institutions want to say to women, what's the problem? You, you have equal rights. You can vote. You can work. You can, you know, do whatever you want to do. No one's holding you back. That's a lie. There is something holding us back. We, we live in a, a cisgender, you know, white male heteronormative patriarchal system and that's holding us back and it's been holding us back uh and until we confront that and and recognize that there are structural barriers and we've been talking a lot about them even in the news lately as we talk about paid medical leave uh you know universal pre-k paid uh child care access to good quality medical care all of those are policy 
decisions that have been made in this country that disadvantage women. The fact that women don't have uh, paid family leave, the fact that women don't have access to universal pre-K or paid childcare for their children, the fact that men aren't given paternity leave in the same way that women are, all play into this system that make it more difficult, more challenging for women to stay in the workplace and to uh, ascend in the workplace. And so one of the things you also focus on is the differences between, you know, the conversation has been a lot around equality and that we really need to shift that conversation and make it around equity. And can you talk a little bit more around those differences when we really focus on the equity piece? Yeah, when you think about, uh, you know, equality, equality says, you know, there, there are two stores in the neighborhood and, you know, you're free, you know, they're, they're equal access to the stores for both of us to go into that store. Equity recognizes that you may have more money to shop in that store than I have. And I have less money because of historical barriers that have, that have prevented me from having the same amount of money that you have. So yes, we can both walk into the store, we can both fill up our carts, but you can pay for your items, I can't. And I can't pay for my items because I've not had the advantages uh, that you've had. So equity looks to even the playing field to make it possible so that you and I both can walk into the store and you and I both have the same access to purchase the items in the store. So if we just focus on equality, yes, the stores are there. They're available to both of us in theory, but you can always walk in and walk out with a basket full of goods. All I can do is walk in and walk around up and down the aisles and walk out empty handed. So th that's the difference in, in a very visual way between equality and equity. And what women want is, yeah, we don't want the right to just apply for a job and get the job. Yes, we can agree with that. Yes, I can apply for jobs and get the jobs. But as long as there's structural issues in the workplace that give men a leg up, that means they're going to always have opportunities for leadership that I won't have. So that's how we you know, need to shift this conversation. What are the barriers that are preventing women from you know, having 50% of those uh, CEO positions in Fortune 500 firms? Women are 51% of the, the population in this country. We're, we're the biggest voting block in this country. I mean, so why isn't there more parity in these positions? I think I read something that said, you know, like 80% of the power in this country is controlled by white men. How, how can that be when 51% of the population, you know, is, is women, is female? So those are the kinds of conversations that I hope this book will spark and will cause people to start looking, you know, more carefully at, at how our system is designed and who is designed to benefit and who is designed to disadvantage. You know, and as, I, as you're speaking, Ariva, I'm, I'm curious because we have a global audience. So I'm actually located in Canada and um, work with lots of companies in the US, North America, and globally as well, actually, like several clients in Europe and in Dubai and throughout the world. So have you noticed some progress that you're seeing in certain countries ahead of the US that that you would like to see more of where you're like, okay, I've, I'm seeing some things happening in these countries, some of those barriers. I'm seeing how workplaces, how communities, how leaders are starting to make changes that are a little bit ahead of the US. 
Yeah, I think there's some countries that, you know, obviously have done more. I think Switzerland is one. Australia is another one that comes to mind. Uh, you know, Canada, if you look at healthcare in terms of universal healthcare. So there, there are definitely some, some countries, democratic countries, where some of the issues we're still grappling with, like paid leave, like universal health care, are, are, you know, the, those countries have figured out how to do it in a way. Uh, and, you know, America, as for all of the, the advances that we have made, we still uh, struggle in so many of those areas. I mean, the, the fact that we're still fighting in this country about something as basic as, as paid family leave, when the, the statistics are clear that women are overwhelmingly the majority of caregivers for not just children, but for aging parents, for sick relatives. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's studies after studies after studies that show how the lack of that kind of policy disadvantages women. Yeah, absolutely. When you were doing the interviewing, cause you talked to many women and um, lots of diverse stories, which ones really jumped out at you that really surprised you? Cause I'm sure when you're hearing difference, um, experiences, there's somewhere you're just like, wow, you know, I can't believe this is still happening or I'm shocked or disappointed or what, what jumped out at you? Well, what the thing that jumped out at me is, is the universal theme through pretty much all the stories. And that universal theme was that women who walked away from jobs and didn't speak up when they experienced microaggressions, they experienced discrimination, they were marginalized or made to be invisible how they regretted that decision. Universally, all the women that did that said they regretted it. Uh, I had a woman write me a review who said, you know, she cried through the first three chapters of the book, thinking about all the times that she walked away from situations where she wished she had used her voice. Uh, So I was surprised to hear so many women express that, you know, in hindsight, or if they had it to do it all over again, that they would indeed speak up, even if it would not have made a difference per se in their personal situation, that they wish they had done it for the next group of women that you know came into that environment. So I, I think that was the thing that was was uh, you know one central theme that kind of surprised me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you spoke about that when you were thinking, when you were speaking around how women can um, speak up, but also owning their value, whether that means having those conversations. And I, I like you were even talking about sometimes maybe if they are actually at the point where they're getting a salary that it's okay for them, there's lots of other ways that they could be advocating, or they could be getting involved in groups that are helping other people who are not getting access to the same opportunities. Um, you spoke a little bit as well around making sure who you're surrounding yourself with. Um, but I, I'd love to hear a little bit more for you like there's going to be women that are hearing that are listening to this conversation and they want us they they recognize what's happening they're tired of what's happening what are some of the recommendations you would give to them if they're going to start to be really speaking up and you're and using their voice to be part of this change yeah i think the first thing is 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 recognizing i, I think these conversations are often you know it's kind of this unspoken uh you know, cold that women and men have about these issues. Uh, They're uncomfortable conversations. They can make people feel uncomfortable, but we can't fix what we don't acknowledge. So I think the first thing women can do is is start having these conversations, is is recognizing that, yes, women have made a lot of progress, but there is so much more work to be done. I mean, the fact that in this country that the, you know, we celebrate 
uh, equal payday or we acknowledge it, we don't celebrate it, we acknowledge it, that women still earn in many cases 65 to 70 cents uh, for every dollar that men earn. That, that's something that we just kind of accept that has become normalized. And, and it shouldn't be. That's something that we should continuously be outraged by. It's something that we should continuously be talking about. It's something that we should be working on uh, equalizing. But that number, that 65 cents, that 63 cents, that, that number has been there for, for years. It's not as if this is something new, but it's very easy for the systemic barriers to become normal, for us to accept it as a given, as if something that cannot be changed. I think we have to reject that notion. We have to fight against the, the urge to just walk past that disparity, that inequity. So what women can do most immediately is, is just have these conversations, is, is talk to other women in the workplace, talk to men in the workplace. You know, are you in a, a work environment where women are paid less than men for the same job? There were some studies done in California. Uh, sometimes it's just about the title. A, a man was, was called a janitor. A woman was called a maid. They did exactly the same thing. They swept, they mopped, they emptied trash cans in a building. But because of that title, janitor, the man was paid more and companies were allowed to get away with that. Wow. So uh, those are the kinds of, of you know, inequities that, that are prevalent in our workplace. And this isn't like happening to other people. This is happening to all of us. And I'm always shocked, you know, and women, I think, are oftentimes shocked when they learn they're sitting next to a guy oftentimes with less experience, less education, you know, less skill and sometimes less talent, but yet they make more money. So I, I just think we've got to be more vocal about these conversations. And even if they're painful, you know, we got to push through that pain uh, and not let some of, like I said, these inequities become normalized. Well, and you know, one of the things that showed up for me, Reva, even as I was reflecting for me and, and my profession as someone who's an entrepreneur and, and does a lot of executive coaching, speaking and training, one of the things I've noticed and with speaking to other uh, females over the last couple of years is seeing this disparity around even um, individuals doing, you know, same experience, um, same credentials, doing coaching. And it's amazing to see how often men are charging a lot more over and over again for the same services. And I, I looked at it from a couple of angles. One is the angle, is it um, us, the females who are not owning our value and charging what we should be charging? I feel like that could be part of it. And then the other part is just through me talking to some individuals where some of the negotiating and some of the things that were coming back when they were quoting proposals, we can even think of times and examples where the, 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 the male in that situation would give the proposal and they'd be like, okay, that's, that's it. We're, we're fine with the, that pricing. Whereas a female gives that proposal and they're naturally negotiating and trying to get that price lower. So I'm curious. You're from so your right. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just, so I'm curious around from your perspective, like what, what needs to change there? Like for, on both, with both parties. Yeah, I, I just had that experience. Someone reached out to me, asked me to do a talk, uh, give a speech next year, a keynote advance, I mean, a keynote speech. And they told me they were paying for my books. I said, that's lovely, but I charge a speaking fee and here's my fee. And with the fee, I, you know, the package comes with X number of books. She wrote me back and says, oh, we had, and she name dropped some big celebrity and we had a deal with her where we bought the books. And I said, that's lovely. Hmm. 
this is my fee. And I hesitated because just as you said, women are often negotiating against themselves. And I said, well, you know, that's lovely that she did this, but here is what I'm charging. And that is what we have to, as women get, I had to be prepared to walk away from the job, which I was just prepared to walk, you know, I won't get it. You're not going to get everything. You're not going to be able to negotiate everything. But if you never set your price and stand firm in it, you'll never get your price. Yeah. And women will. And this is a woman who was asking me to do this. And I am going to uh, now that we've kind of closed in. She, and she came. Here's the irony. She came back and agreed to my fee. <laughs> now, what if I had not stood my ground mm-hmm. and I had let her talk me into First of all, you buy my books that that's I get some royalty from that from the publisher, but that's not like direct cash in my pocket, yeah. you know, so I, that, that's uh, I do this for a living and, and, and people think that you're speaking, you're you're consulting that, you know, these are soft things that, that you shouldn't have to pay for. Like they, they wouldn't walk into a store and say, give me that coat. You yeah. know, I, I don't have cash for it, but I'll give you some tokens for the coat. Yeah. And so I, I just, you know, in that moment, I said, my goodness, if I had not insisted on my fee, I would have been flying across country to give a talk and she would have been buying some books from a bookstore Yeah. that I would have like, you know, gotten some royalty on maybe at some point, but you know, you, you get my point. So yes. the thing we have to do is set your price, stand firm in it recognize that you're not going to get every job and then recognize like in that case a lot of people will take advantage of you if you allow them to take advantage of you yes 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 a hundred percent and and I think that and it's interesting too it's a female that's negotiating (laughs) it is but women are sometimes you know we bought into a lot of these these you know these these uh stereotypes and we act in the same way as men this isn't always coming from men I mean it's oftentimes women and, and women when you are in these positions of power and you can pay other women or you can hire other women. Don't treat the women the same way that we've been treated for years by men. Step up, do better. And I'm going to tell this woman, I mean, after we finish signing everything, I'm going to say, hey, hey, the next time you hire someone, people who speak, speak for a fee. Yeah. They, the books are just extra. Nobody, you know, they're not making any money. You know, people under, have a whole misconception about book publishing. Yeah, People publish books and yes, you may get an advance, but you know, when you speak, that's, I got to write you a speech. I can't go in there and read a chapter of my book and say, I gave you a speech. You know, there's work involved. There's, you know, there's, it's it's different. So I am going to tell her next time you want to hire a speaker, you know, keep in mind the speakers get paid. They do it for a living, offer them something. If you don't have the fee to offer them, you know, go into it, recognize, I know you usually get a fee, would you be willing to consider to forego your fee? At least acknowledge it, but don't just assume that because you're going to buy some books that, you know, from a local bookstore, that that's some value to her. Exactly. It's not. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's, um, and I think it's also uh, the woman, like you said, really owning that and recognizing sometimes that you might walk away from the business. And I can think of times where I did that. And then they came back and said, you know what? I, I found some money. Like <laughs> We found some money now, yes. now that you... <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, miraculously, we now have a budget. 
but yes, you sometimes have to be willing to walk away. Now, you know, when you're starting out, you may speak for free. You may consult with people for free. You know, you may give people a free 30 minute consultation. But at some point when you are an expert and you are a professional, you deserve to be paid for what you do. And the people don't value you enough to want to pay you. That's not who you want to do business with. Anyhow, you go where you are valued. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the other things that you talk about that I think is important is to not be focusing on small scale strategies, but to be really more focused on the, the bigger ones and why the small scale strategies really fail. So what would you like to see more of? Well, the, the larger scale strategies that I'm talking about are these major policy changes. You know, a, a small scale strategy is, is, you know, some of the band-aids that, that we've uh, seen, uh, you know, a company offers maybe, you know, a child care on their location. That may be great for, you know, the women that work on that particular job, but that's not in, enhancing or enriching the lives of women across the board. So a, a major change is, you know, if universal pre-K is enacted. If child tax credit that's enacted so far is extended, if, you know, paid medical leave is enacted, those are things that are going to universally help millions of women just automatically They'll be able to stay in the workplace longer. They'll be able to have access to child care. And those are things that will have dramatic structural changes. Uh, so, you know, one company doing something, great. You know, kudos to that company. But if that's not replicated across all businesses, all industries, we still won't see, you know, wholesale changes as it relates to women in the workplace. So that's why I encourage women to get involved, you know, locally understand these policies, understand the people you're voting for, you know, where do they stand on these policies? Are they supporting policies that enhance, you know, opportunities for women, uh, knowing who you're voting for and making sure that you're, you're voting for folks who are going to fight for some of these policy changes. Yeah. And as you're saying that it's reminding me too, like, I think it's important that those kind of discussions we're having with our young people as well, so that they're getting educated on that. Is that something I know you have, is it, is it two daughters that you have two daughters and a son? Yes. So I do have two daughters. And a I'm son. sure that I read that if I was sitting around your table, that there's some very interesting conversations that take place. Um, so what, what does that look like in terms of you also imparting a lot of this knowledge? Because I think that's really important, too, is having really good dialogues with our, our children, the next generation, helping them understand um, how they can be part of these changes and, and getting curious and, and, and advocating as well. So what does that look like for you in terms of your conversation? And I don't even want to say just your daughters because, and we'll talk a little bit around how we want men to be partners as opposed to allies. Um, what kind of conversations do you have with them? I, I have conversations very similar to the ones I'm having with you. I, I, I've told them this story about this whole woman about the fee for me speaking and, and using that as an example for them. Uh, you know, that when they become professionals in the workplace to not allow people to devalue what they bring to the table, uh, to learn how to set a price for what they do and to demand to be paid for it. Uh, I, I gave them this very vivid example that I put in the book about when I went to get my TSA uh, pre-approval number, known traveler's number from a local Staples uh, how I was livid that I had to show my birth certificate when that what no not my birth certificate I had to show my birth certificate state ID and then the additional document of my marriage license that wasn't on the website 
they don't ask men for their marriage license. And I came home, I was on a rant with my younger daughter, told her never ever change your name. <laughs> that I had, you know, I, I, I became a professional in an era where women were, you know, trying to decide, change your name, not change your name. I changed my name, but that how my degree from the University of Chicago, my degree from Harvard, all have my maiden name. I started a law firm in my maiden name. I went through this arduous process of changing it. And that nobody asked men to change their names. And, and think about that. Like, why? There's, well, where is there a rule that the wife has to change her name versus the husband? And that if you build all this brand equity in your name, how dare anybody ask you to change it? And the system, again, penalizes women when you do change your name. So I, I spent two days on that terror with my daughter. <laughs> I was so livid. <laughs> <laughs> she's like mom she's like okay I get it I get it I'm like no I'm really serious I said it just burns me up no never has you know the society says you know men maybe you're going to become you know Jim Brown or Jim Bell or Jim Smith or whatever whatever your wife's name is there's I'm like who made the rule like mm-hmm. who decided that mm-hmm. and I said after it was a man you know without the input of a woman that and now all the kids have to be named after this man i'm like no why so and just challenging them to think about these rules right these unspoken Mm -hmm. rules that have been you know hoisted on us uh that we don't think about that we accept as golden that we accept that that that, you know a sacrosanct cannot be changed and really when you think about them many of them had women been in positions of power and making the rules, they would be very different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just reminding me all these times we're jumping through these hoops. We, we don't even recognize we're jumping through them. We just, we kind of take it. it. That's how it is. That's how it is. And have to be that way. Right. Right. And if we keep on doing that, as you've um, eloquently said, then change doesn't happen. Right. And I, you know, I, I've seen this even with HR leaders when I've talked to them with multiple things around change and whether that's developing their leaders and investing in that way. And so much is quite often the pushback is, well, yeah, like they, that's just not how we do it here. Well, if you keep on disbelieving, that's not how we do it here. And you're not doing anything to help to change it and have some courageous conversations, then yeah, it's going to continue to stay like that. But that's where you have to have the courage to be able to hold up the mirror and have those important dialogues. Absolutely. You've got to be able to do that. And if you can't, uh, you know, we won't change. We can't, you know, they say definition of insanity, right? Keep doing the same thing, accepting a different result. Yeah. Will not happen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's going to be a lot of men that are listening to this conversation that are part of this audience and they are evolved men that want to be part of this, um, this, this evolution. And so when you think about, I I like how you talk about the differences between being a passive ally and then really being a powerful partner. So they're listening right now and they're saying, okay, Ariva, I want to be that powerful partner. What can I do? How do I need to show up? Okay. And this is a great question. And what I want men to know is obviously we can't make any of these structural changes without you because you are still in control of everything. Companies, the government, you know, the White House, the the Senate, the Congress still controlled by men. And we recognize that. So we, we do need you as partners. And I make that distinction between partners and allies because allies, you know, you can sit on the sidelines and say, yes, this is great. I'm with you. You know, this is a wonderful idea. A partner is vested. You know, you think of a partnership, a business partnership, a marriage. 
Uh, you, You fail together, you rise together, you succeed together. And that's what I want men to understand. This isn't just a woman's issue. Uh, you know, this is a, a community issue. This is a people's issue. This is a human rights issue. Uh, every man has a mother. Every man is, is likely to have some woman in their life, a sister, a, a daughter, a niece, a cousin, or someone. And what do you want that workplace to look like for them? Do you want them to go into a workplace where they are treated differently simply because of their gender? And if the answer to that is no, and if you, I would imagine it's going to be no for 99.9% of the men, then you've got to join this with us. And that means when you're sitting in those meetings, and decisions are being made about who gets that promotion, you're not just sitting there silently, you are actively participating, you're actively being an advocate and a champion for that woman, whether it's for a promotion, it's a raise, it's an assignment. You know, you are standing there saying, hey, it's time that we promote Nancy. Nancy's doing great work. Nancy deserves that next promotion. So it's not always women speaking up for women, but it's men speaking up for women. When you see one of your coworkers, male coworkers, marginalize a woman in a meeting, that you pull them aside and say, hey, man, that, that wasn't cool. You, you talked over that over Nancy. You didn't let her finish her point. You stole her idea. You know, I know that that was her concept and you presented it like it was yours. That's not cool. So you call out your, your fellow, you know, male coworkers in these environments and you create an environment that's conducive to women getting the, the respect and the due that they deserve. Mm. Yeah. So important. And I think this leads in nicely to my question around like, you know, this podcast is called inspirational leadership, because to me, that's about having leaders that are really bringing those. And you started to talk a little bit, I think, even as you were mentioning what you like to see with these partners, but when you think about inspirational leaders, which are ultimately leaders that are creating um, human equitable, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, all of that is central of what it looks like to work in these organi- organizations. What do you want to see? What does an inspirational leader look like to you? To me, it looks like someone who has had an awakening moment that they understand the structural barriers that exist in the workplace and they are working to, to change them, to dismantle them. You know, they're not just going along with the status quo. They're not just okay with having, you know, 10% of their workforce be female, that they, they understand the concept of parity and that they are creating pathways. They're creating an environment that, you know, is conducive for women. When I look at, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. I was having a conversation with someone recently about uh, the number of female equity partners in major law firms. The number is abysmal. And it hasn't changed very much from the time I graduated from law school to now. And then when you look at that number for women of color, it's still an, it's even a more abysmal number. And you ask why? Again, it's not that women go to law school at the same rates, if not higher rates than men. They graduate at the same rate, if not higher rates than men. So why is it that you know, 25 years since I graduated from law school, you still don't have huge numbers of women in equity partnership positions. It's not because we didn't want the jobs. It's not because we're not capable, but something happens along the way that makes it non-conducive for those women. So a visionary leader is someone who is studying that, knows the, the history of these industries, and then is working to change them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. 
The other piece I'm interested in when we start to think about this global pandemic and how it has adversely impacted women in so many different ways. um, I think this ties in as well, not just with the pandemic, but you talked a lot about boundaries and women holding boundaries. What does that look like? Like to to have women holding boundaries and and, uh, not just within the pandemic, but overarching. What does that look like? Well, it's recognizing that you know, particularly if you are a female that's in a position of power and leadership, uh, you've got to learn how to lead uh, in a way that holds people accountable. I like to use the mantra of firm but fair, that you are clear in your directions about what's expected from the people that you manage, and that you hold people accountable. And too often in the workplace, women fall prey to, I think, this notion of being liked versus being respected. Uh, that they are leaning on their nurturing skills. People lean on them for nurturing and they oftentimes cross boundaries. They, they you know, become overly uh, involved emotionally with people in the workplace and they can't, as a result of that, hold people accountable. And, uh, you know, again, asking ourselves, what, what, you know, is a man likely to go into, I mean, a woman likely to go into a male boss's office and, you know, spend an hour talking about a breakup in a relationship, not likely, but oftentimes women become, you know, the, the receivers of that kind of personal information in the workplace. And we, we don't, you know, we don't owe that to people. We don't owe that to other women. We don't owe it to men in the workplace and we should be able to set appropriate boundaries and and leave from a position of authority. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a lot of mental energy that comes along with that. And what are your thoughts on, you know, what it's been like for women during this pandemic? Well, you know, women have carried the brunt of this uh, pandemic, you know, it's women, particularly in low paying healthcare jobs and service industry jobs. Uh, women who had to go into these very unsafe workplaces, you know, even before there was enough PPE, before there was vaccinations, they had to, you know, because they didn't have other options. It was women who had to many times take off work to provide the homeschooling for kids when schools closed. So women, you know, really were hit the hardest by the pandemic. Uh, And, but one thing good coming out of this pandemic is a recognition that people are not willing to go back into the workplace in the same way that they were in the workplace before. They're demanding higher pay, they're demanding more benefits, and they're demanding a more conducive workplace. So that is one of the positives coming out of this. Agreed, agreed. I've been using a lot of languaging, which is so similar to what your book, The Awakening, instead of saying um, the great resignation, it's the great awakening. And so this is an opportunity for um, organizations to have take a look in the mirror and, and recognize what they weren't doing well and making changes and seeing this as a reset. Absolutely. Um, I always like to ask my guests around, you know, you're also a leader who's learning about yourself and we all have strengths and gaps and opportunities to grow. What, what would you say right now that you're noticing in terms of your opportunities for growth that you're trying to focus on? Because I believe as leaders, we're never done. We're always evolving and growing and um, finding different ways to, to to learn about ourselves and get out of our comfort zone. So what's, what's, if you think about your goals for the rest of the year in 2022, in terms of how you'd like to grow and develop as a leader, what shows up for you, Ariva? 
think focus on wellness. I think we have to all recognize we've been through a horrific experience with the pandemic, you know, something we've never lived through before. Uh, and, you know, watching it become politicized over, you know, wearing a mask in the vaccination and people are exhausted. You add that with the civil unrest of last summer with the high profile trials that we've witnessed, there's just a feeling of sheer exhaustion. So I, for me, 2022 is, is centering wellness. Uh, we recognize now we can work from home. We can be productive by working from home. We can, uh, you know, utilize technology in ways that perhaps we hadn't utilized it in the past. And I, I just, I want to show my teams and the people that I work with that their health, their wellness is important to me and my health and wellness is important to me and that, you know, we, we can be productive and be well. I think that's mm-hmm. the message coming out of this, that, that we can protect our mental health, our physical health, and we can be incredibly productive. Right, right. I always say your health is your wealth, right? It shouldn't be at expense of anything else, right? If you're not here and not taking care of yourself, you can't go out there and do any of the important things that you want to do in the world. Right. So Ariva, I always like to give my guests an opportunity as we're starting to wrap up to leave a final thought with the audience. Anything that's showing up for you in this moment as a final thought? Yeah, the thing that I would say to the audience is is recognize that if if people can't grow with you, they can't go with you. A a lot of of being well into the 2022 is going to require self-reflection and self-care. And as you start to do that work, that inner work, that self-work, you're going to make a lot of discoveries about yourself. You're going to make discoveries about the people you want in your life and those that you don't. And that's okay. And I advise people do that audit, do the audit on yourself and do the audit on the people that are around you. And some people, quite frankly, will not, you know, uh, serve you well in 2022. Doesn't mean they're not good people. Doesn't mean they're, you know, not deserving of love or friendship, but they just may not be the right people in your life at this moment in time. So uh, be okay with that. And, you know, those folks that, that are capable and willing and, are valuable to you, you know, invest in those people and those relationships and those that are not serving you well, you know, it's okay to say goodbye to them. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes it's different seasons, right. And it's, as you start to recognize, I like when you are really asking the questions around, are you with people who are where you're celebrating them and they're celebrating your successes? Because if there's not, if there's that feeling of um, scarcity, then that's not serving it. It's not going to serve you. And it's not, it's, it's not an energy that you want to be around. Absolutely. Where can people learn more about you and your work, Ariva? They can learn more at my website, arivamartin.com and on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin. So that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and LinkedIn at Ariva Martin. And then they can visit my website, arivamartin.com. Perfect. And we'll have all of that in the show notes as well. Um, thank you, Ariva, so much for being here today. I, I love your book. I think it's really important discussion that you're having. And um, thank you for the important work and impact that you're making in the world. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, having me on. And everybody, wherever you are in the world, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We're sending you lots of love. Bye-bye. Please remember that meaningful change requires space and grace. Practice self-compassion and become the ripple. As you transform yourself, you transform your workplace and the people around you.